I'm going to open up by reading out of my personal Bible, the HCSB, and we'll be reading out of a few different translations today. I'll have some on the screen. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. This is the words of our Master and Savior. He says, Do not assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today and let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for everything that You do for us. Thank You for Your Word today especially. We're glad to be able to congregate today. We're thankful to be alive and well. Thank You for all the brothers and sisters and children in Messiah. I pray now that You would clear our minds of all worldly things, all carnality. and May we focus on this text, a very important text from the mouth of the Savior. Help us to understand and help us to comprehend and help us to put into practice what we see. We love You. We love Your Son, Yeshua. It's through Him we pray. Amen. I'm going to teach today on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. And we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I started when we were doing some of the home edition teachings in Matthew 5, verse 1. We got all the way through verse, uh, I think, verse 13. And then I taught on 14 through 16, which is mentioning that we are the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. And then last week we began to study in verse 17. We didn't get far. We covered some initial very important things uh, by way of review because I think it's very important. I think that this text that we just read, this is the what I'm going to call, this is the Shema of Yeshua's ministry. Uh, we know that the Shema is the most important commandment in the Torah, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our mighty one, Yahweh is one, or Yahweh all by himself. Yeah, it was a statement of faith. It was a declaration that they were to serve Yahweh all by Himself and no other mighty ones come before Him. I think this is of equal importance in the ministry of Yeshua as the Shema is in the giving of the law through Prophet Moses. It's very, very important. So by way of review, don't think means don't begin to think. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read Greek scholars all the time. And they tell me that this is in what's called the aorist tense, which means do not begin to think. It doesn't mean don't stop, or it doesn't mean stop thinking this. It means do not begin to think. And that made sense to me when I read that because this is at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. I think that will become more clear as we continue to go on. Law of the prophets encompasses all that Yahweh commands. We talked about that, how that the context here is not Yeshua fulfilling a prophecy. 
like Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. But this is talking about law or prophets in the sense that Yahweh gives commandments through Moses, which is a prophet. Yahweh gives instruction and commandments through other prophets as well, whether they be the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel. How many times do we read in Isaiah and Ezekiel, thus saith Yahweh? Or my Bible says, this is Yahweh's declaration. So law and prophets is a reference to anything that Yahweh commands. The context is talking about our obedience, not Yeshua's. It's a very common misconception of this text. Is that when Yeshua said He came to fulfill the law, even in the Messianic Torah community, they think that Yeshua is saying, I came to do the law myself. Now, I believe that Yeshua came to do the law. I believe He came to practice the commandments. But that's not the context of this passage. The context is talking about our obedience. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeshua is talking to the people. Blessed are you when men revile you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works. He's talking about how we are to live. You say, well, in imitation of Christ. Absolutely. We are to imitate Christ. The Apostle Paul said, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. But this passage is not talking about Yeshua's works. It's talking about our works. And in light of that, he says, don't you begin to think that I came to destroy the law. That's your standard of living. That's what you're supposed to go by when you want to know how you ought to conduct yourself and behave yourself amid society. He's talking about all the law here. Another popular concept here is that this is only talking about the moral law. You see this in a lot of the older commentators, which I love to read, by the way. I think that anybody is naive that thinks that they shouldn't read commentators. Because all I'm doing right now is giving a commentation on the Scriptures. All anybody that writes a paper or a book or makes a YouTube video, they're giving commentary on what they believe about the Scriptures. So I think we should all read as many commentators as we can because there are other great men throughout history that have taken it upon themselves to study the Bible diligently. A lot more diligently than me. I think about a guy that I love to read. He was a Presbyterian by the name of Albert Barnes. He lived in the 1800s. And this was before the aid of iPads and iPhones and apps and you know where you can click on words and see what they mean. And you say, oh, well, I'm wondering what this means. And you Google Rashi's commentary from a thousand years ago. They didn't have all this at their fingertips. And then they would write by candlelight. And they would dip into the ink and then write. That took some dedication verse-by-verse commentary on the whole Bible. Barnes notes on the Old Testament, Barnes notes on the New Testament. So I'd be naive to think that I shouldn't read commentators, but that doesn't mean you always have to agree with everything that they say either. You know, Yahweh did give us the capacity to think for ourselves. And we saw that in context that this can't just be talking about the moral law because if we continue to read in Matthew 5, He says if we tell our brother you're a fool or you're a moron, you may have to go stand before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the civil authority in the Jewish community. Seventy elders, patterned after the seventy elders of Moses. That's civil law. Civil law means the penalty for violating one of the commandments. So the civil law is the subject here, and we also see that the ceremonial law is the subject here. This is not popular, but we see it in the context because if we continue to read right there in that first section, 
He says, if you go and bring a gift to the altar, but you remember that your brother has an ought against you, you're supposed to leave your gift. That word gift, in Hebrew would be korban. Sacrifices were bringing gifts to the king. Go reconcile with your brother and then come back and offer your gift on the what? The altar. And I mentioned how the altar there is not like when everybody comes down to the altar at the end of a church service to pray. But that's the sacrificial altar. And the gift is the animal sacrifice. So if you're bringing a burnt offering or a peace offering or even a grain offering, which was a veggie offering, <laughs> meatless, <laughs> a grain offering. The King James calls it a meat offering. That's because meat back then just meant food. But I told somebody one time, there's no meat in the meat offering. It's a veg- vegetable offering or a grain offering. So if you bring one of those offerings to the great king, Yahweh, and you remember, oh man, I've got something I need to settle with my brother. We had a spat. We had a quarrel. I need to go take care of it before I come to to present this to the king. Go back to your brother. Then, after you've reconciled, then come and offer your gift on the altar. And we know that phrase, on the altar is a reference to a sacrifice. Gift by itself could mean like money to the temple treasury. But on the altar helps us to understand that it's talking about a sacrifice there. So that's the ceremonial law. So when Yeshua said, don't begin to think that I came to destroy the law, He's talking about all of it. Anything that Yahweh commands. If we look just at this context, immediately immediately what we want to do what I want to do sometimes, and what I see a lot of people want to do is they want to immediately say, but what about Galatians? Or what about Hebrews? None of that had even been written. We interpret Yeshua's words by the context in which He spoke them. Yeshua here has to be talking about the entire law because of the context. Moral, civil, ceremonial is mentioned. He said, don't begin to think that I came to destroy it. I came to rather fulfill it. I ended last week with fulfill has to mean the opposite of destroy. There is a school of thought that the word fulfill means to fill it up and then to do away with it. Like a prophecy. And a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, they say, well, I agree with you, Brother Matthew. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. And He fulfilled it. And by fulfilling it, that means we don't have to worry about it anymore. Very popular teaching. I know it sounds... A little funny. Very popular though. Jesus did it all for us, so we don't have to worry about doing it anymore. Now I think if we meditate on that just a little bit, that I think we'll see that that can't be accurate because, for example, He fulfilled the law of thou shalt not steal. Does that mean that we don't have to worry about not stealing? And immediately somebody will say, well, I mean, obviously we're not supposed to steal. And then you go commandment after commandment, adultery, murder. See, just because Yeshua fulfilled the law, and by the way, He did it perfectly without sin, without blemish, so that He could be an unblemished sacrifice, metaphorically speaking. He did that, and obviously we don't do that. So we praise Yahweh for Yeshua today. That through His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and high priesthood in heaven, we can have peace with the Father. We believe that. I teach that. But that doesn't mean, because Yeshua fulfilled the law perfectly, does not mean that we now should not strive to be obedient to the Creator. 
in the life that we live in imitation of Him. If the word fulfill meant fill up and do away with, the verse wouldn't make sense because he's saying, I didn't come to do one thing, but Allah in the Greek, I came to do the opposite. Didn't come to do one, came to do the opposite. That's the context. Many interpret or define fulfill by lifting it from this context. By the way, this is an interesting point to bring up. As with many words in the Hebrew and in the Greek, words have different meanings and different definitions depending on how they're used in particular contexts. We have the same thing in English, uh, where we use words, same word in different contexts, mean a different thing. Um, Figures of speech. I don't have any of these in my notes, but you know the difference if I say, I'm craving a pickle, and I like the Clausens. I like the Clausens pickles, and I'm craving one of them. I wake up in the middle of the night, right, McCord, and I want a pickle. You ever want that? Yeah. <laughs> Corey says, oh yeah, absolutely. That's different than if I, let's say I call McCord up during a work day, and I say, you got a minute, Cord? He says, yeah, what you got? I said, man, I'm in a pickle right now. Well, he automatically knows I'm not talking about the Clausens. He knows I might need some help. Maybe I'm stuck and I need somebody to pull me out and hopefully he's in the area and he can help me. So we use, that's just a silly English example, but we use the same words in different contexts. See, So fulfill doesn't always mean what I'm going to show that it means in this context. Fulfill can sometimes mean fulfill a prophecy and there's no more fulfillment. Yeshua fulfilled the prophecy of the suffering servant, Isaiah 52 and 53. We're not looking for a future fulfillment. We're not looking for a double fulfillment of that. So fulfill can sometimes mean fill it up, complete it, and now it's set to the side. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not this context. We don't interpret this word fulfill by forgetting about the verses that are around it. We don't interpret fulfill by saying, okay, let's go to the book of Revelation where the word fulfill is used. And let's see how it's used in that context. Um, And we don't open up a Strong's Concordance or a Thayer's Greek lexicon and we see a list of definitions and we pick whichever one we want. We don't do that. Words are defined by their surrounding context. You know what words mean by the context in which they're used. We know what destroy means, abolish, do away with. So what is the opposite of the word destroy? Opposites in English of the word destroy are confirm, make strong, magnify, uphold, establish. Those are the opposites. And I believe that's what Yeshua is saying that He came to do in regards to not His life necessarily, His actions, but His doctrine, what He taught. I didn't come in my doctrine and my teaching to destroy the law. I came to establish it or to confirm it. The immediate context and the cultural context will help us out to understand this. I want to look at the cultural context of this passage. And the cultural context is rabbinical teaching in the first century A.D. During the second temple period, after the rebuilding of the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were a lot of things that began to be done a little bit differently than prior to that. And one of the things that developed was rabbinical teaching, whereby you would learn and study under a rabbi. Now, the word rabbi or rabbi in Hebrew comes from the word rav 
which means a great one, a master. Um, Ultimately, what it means is this great, honorable teacher that you look up to, uh, that you go to, that you sit at his feet. Uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus learned by sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, a rabbi, a great teacher. Okay? Now, I want to look at a couple of texts here, and I am going to pull these up on the screen. First one I want to go to is John chapter 1. I believe we're going to begin at verse 35. I'm reading from the World English Bible here. More of a literal word-for-word translation, but it has a good flow as well. In John 1.35 it says, Again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Yeshua as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of Elohim. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Yeshua. Yeshua turned and saw them following Him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to Him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted teacher, where are you staying? And He said, Come and see. They came and saw where He was staying and they stayed with Him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Now, if we look at the word Rabbi here in verse 38 right here, pulls it up of Hebrew origin. My master, that is, rabbi, as an official title of honor. And if you look at the Hebrew right there, it comes from the Hebrew word rab, which means abundant or great, actually. And there's, Like I said, there's several meanings for the word depending on the context. But in the context of being a rabbi or uh, being a, uh, a scholar in the first century Judaic faith, it's talking about a great and honorable teacher. Let's go from there to John chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. This is where we meet this man named Nicodemus as we call him. And in John 3 verse 1 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to him by night. Nicodemus came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from Elohim. For no one can do these signs that you do unless Elohim is with him. Nicodemus recognized there was something different. He knew he was a teacher. That's why he called him Rabbi. Rabbi. So, in the first century, you had hundreds of rabbis going around. And these rabbis had students. What we call disciples. Pupils that learned Rabbis were often itinerant, meaning that they would travel from place to place and they would teach. They were very well studied. They spent most of their time studying. They were gifted. They had a way of speaking, a way to communicate. And they had disciples. Disciples would follow the rabbi. And what do disciples do when they follow a teacher? They learn to imitate their teacher. Yeshua was a rabbi. Now he had many, many, many disciples, but he had 12 personal disciples that followed him wherever he went. The custom was that rabbis would not charge for their teaching. I talked about this when we were at the end of the book of Galatians where it said that we're supposed to be willing to communicate good things with the teacher, right? Where it talks about paying ministers in at the end of Galatians. But rabbis would never charge. They would never say, 
hey, I'll teach you if you pay me such and such shekels. You know? Or I'll give you a healing if you send in a love offering. As we hear today on television. Which is a fraud. Okay, so just so hopefully we all know that. That's a fraud, right? So that's a big facade. We don't believe in that at all. So... Yeah, we don't believe in the green handkerchiefs or put your hand on the screen and connect with my hand and all of that. So do I believe that Yahweh heals? Absolutely. I believe Yahweh is the healer. But I don't believe you have to pay for a healing. So Yeshua didn't you know, have this uh, great tent meeting where He had everybody come and drop money in the basket and then He would lay hands on them and heal them. He would go in the most obscure places to people that had been physically ill for decades and he would choose to heal certain ones and it was a beautiful thing the kingdom of Yahweh that was part of the kingdom of Yahweh because when the kingdom of Yahweh eventually comes in finality there will be no more sickness no more death so when Yeshua was healing he was bringing a portion of the kingdom to the community at that time see so what rabbis would do is often they would do trade work Yeshua was what he was a carpenter he took after his earthly father, Yosef, in his trade. He was a carpenter. And they would also live off hospitality. So one thing that teachers could do is receive money if someone gave it to, to them. Or receive a place to stay for the night or for a few weeks. Or receive a, a good meal after they taught. Let me give an example of hospitality and home teaching in Luke chapter 10. Verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Talking about Martha and Mary here. As they went on their way, he, speaking of Yeshua, entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Yeshua's feet, remember, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, And she heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So see, Martha, she was up. She was making sure everybody was taken care of. Making sure the dishes was washed. Making sure everybody had enough food and water to drink. And she came up to him and said, Master, don't you care that my sister left me to serve alone? Ask her, therefore, to help me. In other words, she's sitting at your feet learning the word. She's supposed to be up serving with me. Yeshua answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. So here we see Yeshua going into a home. He's teaching as a rabbi. We see Him being taken care of through hospitality. We also see, and this is a great one for all you sisters here, is that women can also be disciples of Yeshua and learn from the great rabbi. Sometimes I think Some sects or denominations in the world take patriarchy too far to the exclusion and downgrade of the female gender. This passage would go against that. He's there teaching the woman. doesn't say anything about second class, you can't learn from me, anything like that. So women can be disciples as well. But this is a good... Really good example there of rabbinical teaching in the first century. Let's move on to the question, what did the rabbis teach? Anybody want to answer that one? (laughs) Brother TJ, you got it. They taught the Torah. 
They taught the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's the Greek names for the books, but that's how they're commonly known. They taught the Torah, the Law of Moses. That's what they would study. And also the Prophets. They would study the Law and the Prophets, and then they would teach to misinterpret in the first century context, to misinterpret the Torah as a rabbi would study, and obviously they would consult other rabbis in the community. And when, let's say, there were the majority of the rabbis knew that this one rabbi had gotten off kilter in his interpretation of the Torah, you know what they would say? He destroyed the Torah through misinterpretation. You misinterpret the Torah, you teach the Torah wrongly where people are not obedient to it properly, you destroy the Torah. Now sometimes there were multiple levels or angles that were acceptable in the community and they existed alongside each other because as you peel back Scriptures, you can see layers upon layers sometimes. But if you just blatantly misinterpreted it, it was said that you destroyed it. Likewise, or on the opposite end, I should say, if you interpreted the Torah correctly, you know what was said about you? That rabbi fulfilled the Torah. He established the Torah. He confirmed the Torah through his proper interpretation, his correct interpretation that we can now listen to, learn from, and put into practice. He fulfilled the Torah. Now, Hebrew historical writings around this period of time testify to this usage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into it, but if you want to read a good book, I have it here. You can order it. It's called New Light on the Difficult Words of Jesus, Insights from His Jewish Context by David Biven. Excellent book. This book will go into the historical Hebraic writings that confirm the information that I just gave you. How the destroy and fulfill were used in this way in first century rabbinical teaching. Okay? So, Yeshua's point in Matthew 5.17. He had just spoken verses 1-16. through 16, Blessed are all of you. You are salt. You are light. Your good works. And as a rabbi, he correctly interprets the Torah. I didn't come to misinterpret it. I'm about to teach you. Don't begin to think that I came to tell you wrongly about the Torah. I'm well studied. I know what I'm talking about. I came to establish it through proper understanding, through proper teaching. And that makes sense because in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, He's about to get into a lot deeper, more involved teaching on specific subjects in the Torah. So He has not come to destroy or nullify the Torah through misinterpretation. He has come to fulfill the Torah through proper, correct interpretation. Both the cultural context that I just talked about of rabbinical teaching in the first century and the immediate context of Matthew chapter 5 prove this. It proves this not only by the verses before this, which are talking about the disciples' good works, the followers of Yeshua's works, but it also proves it after this, because after this there's a string of verses in Matthew chapter 5 that we'll go all the way through. And they all begin with Yeshua saying, You've heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. When He says, You've heard that it hath been said, He means this is how it's been interpreted, the Torah. And it's, it's wrong. I'm going to tell you the correct interpretation, the proper understanding of the Torah. The Torah has been destroyed by a lot of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to fulfill it or establish it with the teachings that I'm going to present.
This entire sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one sermon. This entire sermon is about how we should live our lives as members of the kingdom of Yahweh. That's what the whole sermon's about. How we are to have practical righteousness among the world. We're members of a different kingdom. Matthew 5, 18, the next verse. I want to ask the question, what does Yeshua mean by until heaven and earth pass away? Because He says, For I assure you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Some commentators and scholars think that by heaven and earth here means the Old Covenant or Old Testament dispensation. This is very popular in one form of eschatology which is called preterism. Now, that's just a fancy word. All it means is past. When we're talking about study of the last days, there's a school of thought called preterism, which means past, and there's a school of thought called futurism, which means, guess what? Future. So some people believe certain prophecies have already happened in the past. Other people believe certain prophecies have happened in the future. I'm right in the middle. That's usually where I find myself. I usually find that the extremes on one way or the other are usually off kilter, and the truth is somewhere right in the middle. So I believe that there are prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled in, the, in our future, but I also believe that certain prophecies have already been fulfilled in our past. And so everybody in here, believe it or not, you too are also probably a futurist, and you're also a preterist. And let me show that to you. For example, in Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, right? Everybody knows that, bruised for our iniquities. I think everybody in here believes that that was a prophecy that was fulfilled in the death of the Messiah. So that means when it comes to that prophecy, you are a preterist. You believe it's happened in the past. So with extreme preterism, people that think that everything has happened in the past, which I don't believe, they say, well, heaven and earth sometimes in the Old Testament is used to refer to the Old Testament economy. Where Moses would say, listen, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, and then he'd speak to the children of Israel. That is one use of the words heavens and earth, but I think that it's a stretch, and I've spent a lot of time meditating on this, but I think that it's a stretch to say that that's the context in this passage. I really do. For the crowd that Yeshua was teaching, when they heard heaven and earth in the context of the Torah being taught, I think that immediately they would think of literal heavens and literal earth. Now more on that in just a moment. I'll talk about why I think that in just a moment. But I believe that heaven and earth here is equivalent with the end of verse 18 where it says, until all things are accomplished. I think all things are accomplished is the end of human history, the end of the world as we know it before the finality of the kingdom. And that is because the phrase heaven and earth doesn't always refer to the Old Testament economy or Old Testament dispensation. Um, let me show you two verses that prove that here in the book of Matthew. Matthew 11.25 is the first one. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 it says, At that time Yeshua answered, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
that you hid these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to infants. Every commentator that I'm aware of, when Yeshua says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, everyone I'm aware of, take this back to, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Fourth commandment, work six days, rest the seventh, for in six days Yahweh created or made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. That's one text, and then this one is extremely good. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And remember, this is post-resurrection. So Yeshua's already died, brought in the blood of the new covenant. And in Matthew 28, 18, He says, Yeshua came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Definitely not talking about the Old Testament dispensation there because it's over. He's died. So when he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, you know what I think he's talking about? All authority has been given to me in the heavens up there and on earth down here. I have rulership that's been given to me up here where the angels dwell. I have rulership that's been given to me down here where where humans dwell. So I think that's what Yeshua is talking about in... Those two texts in Matthew, and I think he's talking about the same thing in Matthew 5.18. Until heaven and earth pass away. And I think he's using hyperbole. I don't really even think he's, in his mind, he's thinking about there will be a time that heaven and earth passes away and then the law will cease to exist. I think there's an understanding to that. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's making an exaggeration to prove a point. I'll show you how firm the law is until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished, until everything comes to an end. So Yeshua is using the stability of the heavens and the earth to show the stability of the law. The heavens and the earth are stable. They've been here since Yahweh created them. They haven't left. They're not going anywhere. Remember what Genesis 8.22 says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remains, the earth is stable, the heavens are stable. Now, I want to compare this use of heaven and earth by Yeshua in the context of teaching the Torah with two Old Testament passages. And I'm going to show you these passages are why I think that the crowds, Hebrew, the Hebrew people that were listening to Yeshua speak, would have associated what Yeshua said with what they already knew in the Torah and also in the book of Psalms. First one I want to go to is Psalm 119, 89 through 96. Psalm 119, 89 through 96. And those of us here should know Psalm 119, what it's about. The law of Yahweh. It's a great, great chapter. Psalm 119, 89. The psalmist says, Yahweh, your word is settled in heaven forever. Think about this as we read. Your word is settled in heaven forever. Your faithfulness is to all generations. You have established the earth and it remains. What did Yeshua say in Matthew 5.18? Until heaven and earth pass away, nothing in the law will pass. Your laws remain to this day for all things serve you. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for with them you have revived me. 
I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me. I will consider your statutes. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commands are boundless. The context here is about the beauty and the perfection and the righteousness of the law word of Yahweh. And he mentions it's established in heaven and the earth. As they're stable, the law is stable. Now, look also with me to Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. This one is extremely good right here. Remember, this is in the Torah. Moses is saying, Therefore you shall lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul. He's speaking as a spokesman for Yahweh. This is Yahweh's words that we're talking about. You shall bind them for a sign on your hand. They shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give them as the days of the heavens above the earth. The context here is remembering the law. And in the context, he mentions as the days of the heavens above the earth. In other words, they're still here. It's from the time that Yahweh made them, created and made them. They're still here. When Moses said this, and guess what? They're still here now. And Yeshua said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. So when the crowds heard Him say that, I think, being that they were Hebrew people, they would have thought about verses like this that associated the law with the heavens and the earth. In Matthew 5.18, He says, Not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law. We know the King James says, Not one jot or tittle will pass from the law. That's how a lot of us know this verse. What is a jot and a tittle? The word jot in Greek is iota. It's actually the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. But it goes back to the Hebrew letter yod. And yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew Aleph Beit. Smallest letter. The tittle is the Greek word kariah. And it goes back, it means like a little horn or a little curvature. And it refers to something even smaller than a yod. It refers to the little curves or little horns on the Hebrew letters. Now when Yeshua spoke this, He probably would have been referring to something like we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we call paleo or more ancient Hebrew. But I think the same thing holds firm to the more modern block Aramaic Hebrew that people are accustomed to today. Letters in Hebrew have strokes in them and sometimes the strokes differentiate which letter is being spoken of. Now, for instance, let's look right here at the Yod. We find it here. So the Yod is going to be right there. That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew Aleph Bait. And Yeshua says, not one Yod will pass from the law. We have pastors today that want to do away with entire commandments. Yeshua says not one yod will pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away until all things are accomplished not one yod 
will pass from the law. And then he also says, or tittle, or the smallest stroke of a letter. Now, look right here at, up here at the top left, we have a dalet. If we transliterate that into English, it would be our English D. And then here at the bottom right, we have a resh. They look very similar, right? They look very similar, except for, notice at the dalet, right here we have a little... A little tittle, a little horn, a little little stroke. That's what Yeshua is talking about when He says tittle or stroke of a letter. Okay, we have the same thing between the hay. Up here at the top left, we have the hay. And then over here we have the chet. Now I want you to notice that in the hay there's a space right there. But in the chet... It's drawn all the way up to the top. These are little tittles. These are the strokes of the letter. Yeshua says, not one yo, the smallest letter, or even the stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. That is the context of what Yeshua is talking about. And as I said, the same thing can be showed in the more older style of Hebrew script. So, what Yeshua is referring to here is, I did not come to destroy anything in the law. Down to the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a letter. Yeshua is using the strongest language He can to say that the law will remain and it will not be destroyed. And when He says heaven and earth passes away, He is probably referencing Revelation, or what would later be written in Revelation 21, 1-4, through 4, that time frame, and also what's written in 2 Peter 3, 10-14. Now, I know I've spoken for a long time. This is a long sermon. But I want to go to these two texts. I want to read them. Okay, Revelation 21, 1-4. through 4. Let's go there. If you make notes in your Bible, you can make a, a footnote to relay this to Matthew 5, 18. Revelation 21.1, John later writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have what? Passed away. And the sea is no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from Elohim, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice out of heaven saying, Behold, Elohim's dwelling is with people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and Elohim Himself will be with them as their Elohim. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The first things have passed away. So this is talking about the future event of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And I think that this parallels with what Yeshua said in Matthew 5.18. Now, not only that, but look at 2 Peter Chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, I think this is also another reference paralleling Matthew 5.18. Peter says, But the day of the Lord, it's a common phrase in the Old Testament, day of Yahweh, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be destroyed like this, what kind of people ought you to be in holy living and holiness or godliness? 
looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, which will cause the burning heavens to be dissolved and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But according to His promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I mentioned before how that there is a sense in which when the current heavens and earth pass away, the law will pass away in this way. Yahweh is going to remove the ability to sin from us. At the resurrection of the righteous, when we're resurrected, those that die in Christ, those that are fallen asleep in Christ, when they are raised on that great last day, the voice of Yeshua, John chapter 6, He calls them up from the tomb. Those that died in Christ, they're resurrected to what? Immortality. Deathlessness. Not able not just to die anymore, but not able to sin anymore. The ability to sin is removed from us. Right now we have the ability to sin and the ability to do righteousness if we're, if we're born from above. But in that day, there will be no ability to sin. So why then would you need the law? The law shows what? Sin. So it doesn't mean that in the kingdom it will be lawlessness. There will be righteousness in the kingdom. It will just be no need for the law because there will be no sin anymore in the kingdom of Yahweh. I think that that's a, a harmony there. So, in conclusion, Yeshua did not come to destroy the law, but to confirm and establish it through proper interpretation and teaching, and obviously by His example. He confirmed it. He showed us how to do it. Uh, I had an old man one time said, I know what state that Yeshua was from. I said, what state was He from? He said, He was from Missouri. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, that's the show me state. And he showed us how to do it. <laughs> That's the nickname for Missouri is the show me state. <laughs> so this old man, he's probably 80-something years old. And I laughed. But he showed us how to obey the law. And he taught us the proper understanding of the law. Not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. And I think everything is accomplished means the end of the era in which we know it. At the coming of the new heavens and the new earth when the first heavens and earth pass away. So therefore, we should listen to the Master. We should listen to the Master. I know the first inclination is, well, what about? What do you think about Hebrews chapter 7? Or what do you think about Galatians chapter 3? That's the first thing that people do. And you know what ends up being done? They usually place as primary Galatians 3 or Hebrews 7 over and against Matthew chapter 5. I think it should be done the other way. I think Matthew chapter 5 should be primary. And the other text should be secondary. Not that the other texts are meaningless or not inspired, but they should be interpreted or understood in light of primary texts from our Lord and Savior. Next time I teach, I'm going to talk about therefore. And as Brother TJ taught us when he was going through Ephesians, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. Matthew 5.19 begins with therefore. In other words, on the basis of what I've just told you in verses 17 and 18, this is now what the conclusion is. And I'll read it. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven.
For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. On the basis of what Yeshua has just said, recorded by Brother Matthew 5, 17-18, He says the conclusion is we must be practicers and teachers of even the smallest of the commandments. Because if we don't, we'll be called least in the kingdom. I'll talk about what I think that that means. And if our righteousness doesn't surpass the scribes and Pharisees, we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people believe that's imputed righteousness. If you want to know what I believe, you'll have to wait till next time. <laughs> All right. Praise Yahweh. Glory be.